Joshua's one of my favorite books of the Bible. When I was a little boy, my mom used to put me to bed with Bible stories, and I loved the stories in Joshua because, ladies, you're not going to like this, but little boys are savage little creatures. I know they can look really adorable, and then they grow out of it. You know, by the time they're 13, they are definitely not adorable, and we get less adorable as it goes. But, but even in that stage when they're little and cute, and they want to climb up on your lap and go to sleep, they're still savage little creatures, right? And so I loved these stories of all this fighting and, and destruction and, and death. Uh, and then I get to be a pastor, and I realize, oh, there's some problems with the book of Joshua. I mean, this is a book in which literally... God commands his people to invade a country that has not done anything to them and take it, all, take it completely over. And he explicitly says, don't, don't make peace with any of these people. You've got to drive them all out. And if they won't leave on their own, you have to kill them. And there are moments in Joshua where a lot of people die, where whole towns are annihilated. And God is at the center of this. God commands this. And so we have a problem as 21st century believers because we know what the rest of the Bible says about the character of God. We see Jesus come along and, and we see the way he behaved and the way he lived and the compassion he lived with. And we think, okay, how can these be the same God? So we'll talk about that later in the series, not today, but later in the series, I promise. There's another issue that I do need to deal with today. And that is, why is this book relevant for Christians? I know that some of you really enjoy military history. I'm one of those, and that's one of the reasons why I still enjoy the book of Joshua. But a lot of you aren't. That's not your thing, and I get that. So why should you care about a book about some military maneuvers that happened thousands of years ago in a place most of you have never been? Well, that's what I want to start with. Before we get into the book of Joshua, I need to do some work and help us see why this book is important for us today. Not just because it's in the Bible, that would be enough, but this is why, this is how we are to read it. So uh, I have to start with the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is written, was written to first century believers who happen to also be Jewish. So these are people who may have known Jesus, may have known the apostles, but they were in that next generation afterwards, and they're starting to get discouraged. They're starting to say, maybe we just need to go back to the temple and start doing the sacrifices and observing the feasts again. Uh, and because, you know, showing up Sunday mornings in that little house church and being persecuted like we're being persecuted, life is, life is harder for us now. They were getting discouraged. And so the whole point of the book of Hebrews is the same as the point of the sermon series we just got finished on grit. Essentially, don't quit, don't give up. Victory is on the horizon as long as you don't quit. And so in, in context of all of that, here's what he says in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Listen, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and, uh, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So you know that thing where someone says the words to a song that everybody else knows and you immediately you're immediately in the context, right? Like if I were to say, the stars at night are big and bright. Yeah, they've been the heart of Texas. Now I could have done, I could have done rock or country, but I went with that. Um, so the author of Hebrews is quoting a song, a song that everybody reading this book for the first time would have known because it was Psalm 95. 
The 95th Psalm is not only a song they all knew because they grew up singing it in synagogue, but it's about an event that they all grew up knowing about, and that is the Exodus. If you were a Jewish kid, even today, you learn about the Exodus. You know about Moses and, and how he led his people out of slavery and across the Judean wilderness and into the promised land, although he didn't make it to the promised land, and that's the point. Psalm 95 is reminding the people, and the author of Hebrews, Hebrews is reminding them as well, remember, that generation didn't make it. They had all the advantages. They'd seen what God could do. They'd seen miracles. They had the, the flame of God leading them through the wilderness, and yet somehow they fell short. Why? And when he says, they will not enter my rest, uh, that's an interesting way of saying it, but he's not talking about rest like sleeping late on a, Sunday, on a Saturday morning or retiring or going on vacation. The rest of God is a reference to the life God wants us to have. It's a life, well, in their context. If they would have gone to the promised land like God wanted them to, they would have enjoyed a land flowing with milk and honey. They would have had a country where they would have had to work. You'd have to plant, you'd have to tend, you'd have to harvest, you'd have to fight some battles, you'd have to build some houses and raise some animals. It's hard work, but your work would pay off. And there would be no poor people in the land because the law of God structured it in such a way that you shared with everybody and everybody had enough. And by the way, you wouldn't have to deal with corrupt government because God is your king. There is no earthly government the way Israel was supposed to be structured. God is the king, so you wouldn't have to worry if, if this king or, or that king or this president or that president was no good. And by the way, if other countries decide to invade, well, that's no problem either because God's going to fight your battles for you. And anybody who was dumb enough to invade would find themselves defeated. And so the ultimate point is that all the nations of the world would see little Israel prospering in this way because they're following God and, his, and the nations of the world will be drawn to their light and they will come to know the God who can save them. Israel was the hope of the world. Problem was, that generation of people failed. They didn't follow God, and they never crossed that river into the promised land. So what does that have to do with us? In John 10, 10, you may have heard this before. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He's not just talking about heaven when we die. And he's certainly not talking about what the prosperity gospel preachers say. He's talking about a life where you may not necessarily have more physical stuff than other people, but you enjoy that stuff more. You enjoy the family God has given you. You enjoy the friends God has placed you with. You enjoy the church family you've been given. You enjoy the work that God has given you to do and the purpose you have in this world. You may not have better circumstances, but you have more joy and you have more peace and you may have more purpose and you know that your life is making a difference. That's the life God has for every single one of us. And he's not just talking to individuals. See, this is where we as Americans get the Bible wrong because we're so individualistic. We read everything in the scripture as if it's written just to me. The truth is, and I've told you this before, y'all is a biblical word. So when you see the word you, Y-O-U in scripture, most of the time that is not a singular you, it's a plural you. And if someone from the South had been translating from Greek and Hebrew into English, it would say y'all. And that's the case here. So in chapter 4, 11, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's saying, let's not make the mistake that those people did in, in Egypt all those years ago in the wilderness who fell short of God's plan. 
Let's not miss God's plan for our lives. And he's not talking about us individually. He's talking about as a group, as a body. He's talking to First Baptist Church today because as a church, we can blow it. We can fall short of God's plan. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but it happens all the time. You could see 20, 30, 40 years from now, you could see people driving through downtown Conroe and going, what's that big building over there? And somebody, some old timer saying, oh yeah, I remember when that was a church. Yeah, that was a great church. Well, what happened? I don't know. I don't know. They, they must have just died. Now it's a, you know, now it's a administrative building for the county or now it's, you know, a honky tonk or whatever, but it's not a church anymore. That could happen. On the other hand, Joshua is the story of what happened after Moses was gone and that whole generation that had failed was gone. It's the story of the next generation that came along and actually did what the first generation should have. They crossed the Jordan. Spoiler alert, they defeated the Canaanites. They claimed the land. They accomplished God's plan. So which generation do you want us to be more like as a body of believers? See, I can't say I know everything that God has planned for this church. I know that it's popular for pastors of churches to act like they know the future. I will just be the first to admit, I do not. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less 10 years from now. I hope I'm here to see what God's going to do in this church over the next 10, 15, maybe even more years than that. But here's what I do know. See, we're like Joshua and the Israelites. We're standing on this side of the Jordan River, and we know the promised land is over there, and we don't know what it's like yet because we haven't been there yet but we know some good things. We know that God is good and that he has good plans for us. And we know the same thing here as as part of this church. We know that God loves us enough to make us part of his plan to reach the people of this city and this county because he loves them enough to die for them. And so thinking in that way, you know that some of what God has planned for us involves us becoming a church that is so full of the Holy Spirit that every time we gather, we know something big is gonna happen. We know that we're going to sing our hearts out and we're going to feel the Spirit of God moving in our midst and we're going to walk away changed. We know that we're going to continue to see more people uh, come to know Christ, like the people we baptized this morning. We're going to see the, the fact that somebody's going to walk into this church and say, I'm ready to follow Jesus. That's going to be a regular thing. And it's not going to be any less exciting, but it's going to be more often. We're going to see marriages that were fractured start to come back together and families that were broken start to be healed. We're going to see people get prayers answered in miraculous ways. Won't happen every day, but we'll see it. We'll see, we'll see kids making good decisions and growing up healthy and strong in Christ and old, older folks uh, living meaningfully into their 80s, 90s and beyond and us just cherishing them and and. and valuing them the way they should be. We're going to see a community transformed and we get to be at the middle of that. Not just us, but every church that preaches the name of Christ. That's what it looks like when revival happens. Revival is when the people of God wake up and start getting into the center of God's plan again. And God uses them to change the community around them. So Joshua gives us the answers. That's what this book is about. It gives us a roadmap, a guide for accomplishing the plan of God, even when you don't know exactly what it's going to look like. So let's get into the book of Joshua. Let me start by saying this. It's interesting that a book about an invasion doesn't even have a battle until the sixth chapter. 
So what's the first five chapters about? That's what we want to talk about today. First five chapters of Joshua is God preparing his people for war. And yet there's no record of any military drills. There's no record of any uh, training in hand-to-hand combat or strategy or anything like that. Instead, God leads them through a series of activities that seem to have nothing to do with fighting a war. It's sort of like, um, okay, some of you are going to miss this because you're not the same age as me, but the movie Karate Kid. And I, I've never seen the remake with Jackie Chan and, and Will Smith's son. I, I'm talking about the one from the 80s. So if you haven't seen the movie, Daniel is this teenager who moves with his mom to a new town and immediately runs afoul of a group of bullies who just wipe the floor with him basically every day. And he's just, he's just getting killed. And he finds out that his apartment complex's janitor, Mr. Miyagi, is trained in martial arts. He says, can you teach me what you know? And Mr. Miyagi says, yes, I can, but you have to agree that you're going to say, you're going to do everything I tell you without question. He says, absolutely. First day of training, he shows up. Mr. Miyagi says, okay, Daniel, son, for your first day of training, I want you to wax all the cars in my fleet. So you wax on with your right hand, wax off with your left. So Daniel, son, he... <laughs> Waxes every car in that parking lot. Next day he shows up. He says, okay, Daniel, son, your, your assignment today is to paint this fence. He gives him the paint bucket and the paintbrush. He says, paint up like this, paint down like that. So after a while of this, Daniel's getting discouraged and he's starting to, he, he goes to Mr. Miyagi. He says, I, I'm, I want to be trained to fight. You're, you're using me as slave labor. I'm done with this. But Miyagi shows him. If somebody pu- throws a punch at you, you block it by waxing on or waxing off, or painting up, or painting down. And he shows him, all this time I've been training you and you didn't even know it. The movie's better than what I just dramatized for you, trust me. But but the point is, God does that to us. God Miyagi's us sometimes by, by leading us through a series of events, and we don't see the point of them, but all the while God is training us to be the people we need to be to accomplish his plan. So let me show you what I mean. Joshua begins this way. Joshua 1, 1 through 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. I can't overstate this. I can't possibly overstate this. Moses was a just a titanic figure for the Israelites. He'd been their leader for 40 years. He's the one who led them through the Red Sea. He's the one who called down the curses on Egypt that devastated the most powerful nation on earth. He's the one who's been, who's been guiding them through the wilderness all this time. These people, other than Joshua and Caleb, other than those two, the rest of the thousands of Israelites have never even known life without Moses at the head of their group. And now he's gone. So what's gonna happen? This new guy, Joshua, is now the leader. And look at, what the instru- look at the instructions that God gives to Joshua in verses eight through nine. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's saying to Joshua, and he says it four different times if you read the whole chapter, be strong and courageous. The only thing that can stop you is your own fear. And his cure for fear is 
don't let the word of God depart from your mouth. So what is the word of God in, in, in that time? There's only five books of the Bible at that point. It's the books of Moses. We call them the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And God, is, God says, keep saying these words to yourself. See, back then they didn't have physical Bibles that you could just sit down and read. It was all verbal. And so for Joshua, he was saying, when you hear these words, go away muttering them to yourself, saying them to yourself, reminding yourself of what the word says. See, the thing is, if you're afraid and you can't sleep at night and you can't eat and you want to get these terrified feelings out of your your mind, these these troubling thoughts out of your mind, the worst thing you can do is just sit there and go, okay, I'm just not going to think about it because it won't work. God gives you the right advice here. He says, focus on the word of God. Meditate on that. Replace the bad thoughts with the good thoughts. If you're thinking about God's word, you're not thinking about those bad things. That's the advice he gives Joshua. So the first thing Joshua does in obedience to God at the command of God is he sends two Israelite men across the Jordan River to spy out the the land and to come back and give a report. Now, this is a risky move and Joshua knows it because 40 years earlier, when he was a young man, when he was in the prime of his life, he was one of 12 spies who Moses sent across the Jordan to spy out the land. And they came back and Joshua and his friend Caleb both said, it's a great land. We're going to have it. We're going to prosper there. But the other 10 spies said, those people are huge. They're, they're, they're giants. We're like grasshoppers. They'll crush us. We can't, we can't do it. And it discouraged the people. So Joshua, in sending these two spies over, knows there's a chance they could come back and repeat history. But God told him to do it, so he does it. And then the next thing, it gets worse than that. In chapter 3, God says, okay, now it's time to cross the Jordan. Now, okay, if you're into history, uh, you know this. If you're not, let me tell you a little something. So back during World War II, when the Nazis controlled all of Europe, and we knew, we, I wasn't there, but the Allies knew that in order to get over there and win the war and liberate all those millions of people, you had to invade. You had to land on Europe, knowing the Nazis are waiting for you to come and they're going to kill you when you try. So what did we do? We created all these diversions. We created false battle plans that we leaked to the Nazis so they'd think we were landing over here. Uh, there was even a point where they, they built a fake army with rubber tanks and paper mache airplanes so that the Nazis would say, oh, look, there's this army over here. Looks like that's where they're going to land in Europe. The whole idea was deception. Now, when God sends his people to invade the promised land, he does it very differently. There's no deception It's all out in the open. In fact, they cross the Jordan River right next to where Jericho is, the most fortified city in the whole land. They cross in full view of the enemy. They cross not just their fighting men, but their women, their their little children, their old folks, everybody. And they cross when the Jordan is at flood stage, the worst possible time. What is God up to? We'll we'll see in just a minute. And it gets worse than that. In chapter 5, God says to Joshua, okay, you're on the other side now. You're in enemy territory. So now here's what I want you to do. I want you to have all the men in Israel circumcised. Okay, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your mother. I'm not going to tell you. But think about it for a second. I'm sorry, this is going to sound painful, and it was. But this is happening in a time when there was no anesthetic. There was no antibiotics. And they used flint knives. 
So sharpened rock. And so one of the, one of the more un- unintentionally hilarious verses in the whole Bible is Joshua 5.8, which says, after the nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were until they were healed. I bet they did. And you can imagine the men going, they want me to do what? And their wives and their children saying, you're going to do what? I mean, the enemy's right there. If they attack and all our fighting men are in bed, what's going to happen? We know what's going to happen. And yet, this is what God told them to do, so they did it. What was God doing? Well, number one, when those two spies got back, they said, we're going to win. Because everybody we talk to, they already know we're coming, and they're scared to death. They've been hearing stories about us for the last 40 years and what God did to Egypt, and they're terrified. And then secondly, uh, when the people crossed the Jordan, that gave them even more confidence because the way they did it, according to God's plan, was the first people to touch the water were the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant on two long wooden poles. And as soon as the priests got into the water, the water stopped flowing. Does that sound familiar? The water stopped flowing and it made this huge gap and the, whole, and the people were able to cross on dry ground. And it was God's way of saying, okay, see, I'm doing the same stuff for Joshua that it did for Moses. So really it doesn't matter who the human person is in charge. I'm the one in charge and I haven't changed. And then in chapter five, verse one, we read this. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the West and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now, this is something Moses predicted back in Deuteronomy. He said, God is going to send the hornet ahead of us. What does that mean? Have you ever seen uh, somebody when like a bunch of wasps just suddenly fly in the midst of them? Have you ever seen people, like if you see somebody from a distance and there's a wasp that's chasing them or a hornet or a bee, it looks like they've snapped, right? They've just lost their mind and they're running around going, ah! So God is saying, I'm going to send such terror among the people of the land. Most of them won't even fight you. They'll just throw down their arms, pack up, and leave. Now, some of them are stubborn, and they're going to fight, but you'll win. But you won't even have to defeat most of them. And that's already starting, according to Joshua 5.1. But then why the circumcision? Why does he make them go through that step? Joshua 5, 4 through 5 gives us the answer. It says, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of covenant. It was like, for us, it was like baptism. But baptism is the sign that you are a child of God. You've been redeemed by Jesus. Personally, I like our covenant sign better. But either way, the people went through with it because they were saying, we're not going to win if it's up to us and our strength and our skill. We're not warriors. We're people born in the wilderness, the children of slaves. We're only going to do this. We're only going to accomplish this if God gives us the power. And we're only going to have the power of God if we're obedient to God. So let's obey him. Even though this is painful, even though this is risky, even though this doesn't seem logical, let's do what God says because we're nothing without him. And then in chapter five, verse nine, it says, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. 
So after they went through the circumcision, after they obeyed God in all these little steps, something else I skipped over, they celebrated the Passover in enemy territory. So they'd done everything God commanded and God said, okay, I can tell. You're not like your fathers and mothers. You're going to follow me. And because you're not like them, your fate will be different. You will accomplish my purpose. You will enter my rest. So what is the lesson for us today? Here it is, one simple sentence. There's nothing more powerful than simple obedience. And I need to say that on a corporate level because you and I, we get worried about our community and, and things that are falling apart, our family, our school, our country. You watch the news sometime and you might think, oh man, society is coming apart at the seams. We won't, we won't last another day. And we want something big to happen. If you're my age or older, you're like, oh, we need Billy Graham to come back. We need another Billy Graham and that'll change everything. You know, nobody admires, nobody here admires Billy Graham more than I do. But if Billy Graham were alive today, his ministry would be very different. A man in a stadium on TV preaching a sermon, no matter how skilled, no matter how anointed, would not reach this culture like Billy Graham did 50 years ago. We're in a different stage. You and I may think, oh, well, we need to elect this person and then that will, that will solve all our problems. Oh, like it has before. No. No, our hope is in obedience to God. I'm not saying preachers don't matter. I'm not saying politicians don't matter because they do. But I'm saying our hope, our true hope is in God. And the only way to experience the fullness of his plan is simple obedience. It's doing the seemingly small and insignificant things and doing them over and over again. See, here's something I learned when I was in my teens and early 20s. I got saved when I was nine and then I was 16. I, I, I came to understand, okay, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And it was like almost like a second conversion experience. And then I was really on fire for the Lord. And I was obsessed with this idea. If I can just find God's will for my life, then I'm going to have a great life. It was like, it was as if God's will is this treasure map that if you find it, then you know the path to take and you'll always make the right decision and, and everything turns out great. But I learned that's not the way God's will works because the danger of that is you're gonna sit around going, okay, God, I'm not moving till you show me your plan. And God's like, I'm not gonna show you my plan until you do what I told you to do already because I know I've used this illustration before recently. God's plan is less like a road map or a treasure map and more like a trail of breadcrumbs where you follow him step by step, where it's like, okay, I need to do what I've been told to do already. And if you're wanting God's plan and, and God's up there saying, well, you haven't forgiven that person that you're mad at yet. You haven't started being generous with your finances. I've blessed you with more than you need to survive. So why aren't you using that to bless my work and to bless others? You haven't started praying for your enemies. That's in the Bible. You haven't started being compassionate toward people who are hurting you. You haven't found a ministry within the church where you could, you're blessing the body of Christ. You haven't started purposely putting others ahead of yourself. There's all kinds of stuff you haven't started doing yet. Why should I tell you the next step in the plan when you haven't done this step yet? There's a whole lot of us here, I believe, that the reason why we aren't moving forward is we're waiting on God to give us some great plan when he's saying, do what you already know you're supposed to be doing. And then I'll tell you the next step. See, that's the way it's going to be for our church too. Again, like I said, I don't know God's ultimate plan for this church, but I do know things we should be doing right now. We should be more consistent 
in being here on Sunday mornings, not just when it's convenient, but every time we're in town and healthy, we should be here. And we should come with hearts that are prepared. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to impress somebody. We're here to praise the Lord. And we're here to fellowship with his family. We need to be people who pray a lot more often than we pray. Because I can preach uh, the best sermon I know how, and it's not going to change anybody. It's the power of God that changes people. So we need to be praying. And, and we need to be people who, who, when we see needs in our community, instead of throwing up our hands, we need to say, what can we do about that? What can we do as a life group? What can we do as a family? What can we do as a whole church? And most of all, most of all, we need, to, we need to get to the point where everybody in our church realizes my job as a Christian is not just to be in church. My job is not just to identify as a Christian. My job is to invest in people because they're the only thing that lasts forever. And that's why transforming relationships is our whole thing. I need to find who's that person God wants me to be investing in right now. And I need to hold myself accountable to, to love that person as best I can until God uses me to accomplish whatever their life, what he ha whatever plan he has for them in this moment. And you may think, you know, it doesn't sound all that dramatic or exciting to just show up on a Sunday morning ready to worship or to write a check or to attend a prayer meeting or mentor a, a school kid or, or have your next door neighbor's family over for dinner. And yet every time you do something that you know God wants you to do, especially something you've been putting off or avoiding, you're bringing us as a church one step closer to being all that God wants us to be. You're going to find out in the book of Joshua in a couple of weeks that one person holding out on God, one person refusing to do God's will can destroy the lives of thousands of people way beyond what you think, can hold back the purposes of God in an entire church, an entire community. So yes, your actions affect more than just you. And every time you do something that God told you to do, you're making our community a little more like the promised land. So what is that thing, that thing that you know you should be doing, but you're not currently doing? What is that thing that you know God has commanded, but you haven't yet obeyed? I want you to think about that. I want you to reckon with that question before you go to bed tonight. In fact, I would really, really like it if when I pray in just a moment, instead of daydreaming about this or that, or just listening to me talk, you were having a little conversation with God yourself saying, okay, Lord, I've been putting it off, but I'm going to make that phone call this afternoon. Okay, Lord, I know I should have been doing this all along, but me and my wife, we're going to talk it over today, and that's, this is the step we're going to take, whatever it might be that you would make a decision today, commit to the Lord, I'm going to obey you in what I know I should be doing right now. But first, let's just remember the whole reason any of this matters is because of the obedience of one man. And that man was Jesus, who heard from his father, there's only one way to reconcile God to man. There's only one way to rescue people who are lost and dying without me. And that is through you invading this world and winning the victory over evil through your death. Jesus knew what it meant. He knew what it would cost him, and he came anyway, because that's what you mean to him. And that's why we're saved. And that's what we get to bring to those who don't know him.